welcome to Matt and Brett Love Comics. This is one of your hosts, Brett. Matt is not here right now because this is not actually the episode. Everything you're hearing is a lie. Actually, today's episode is a pre-recorded panel from this past weekend's uh, Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina that Matt and I and producer Ben and our cosplay correspondent, Kirk D'Amato, were at uh, that cosplay correspondent bit. Links to something you guys will be hearing in a few days, weeks. Hopefully not a month. Probably maybe a week. Uh, this is the Stumptown panel from the show with writer Greg Rucka, artist Matthew Southworth, and colorist Rico Renzi. Rico also helps put on Heroes Con, so he was doing double duty in a bunch of awesome ways that weekend. Uh, Stumptown is the Oni Press miniseries. It, had, it has had two volumes, both to critical acclaim because it is an awesome, awesome, it's an awesome series. So you're going to, basically, you're kind of like a book club episode, sort of a bonus book club episode with the creative team of that as Matt and I moderate the panel. Just to give you guys a heads up about the next book club episode, next week we will be reading Young Avengers, Volume 2 from this past year by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, issues 1 through 5, with special guest Captain Marvel cover artist Joe Quinones and Primate's illustrator Maris Wicks. So enjoy the Stumptown panel from Heroes Con. Go on and check us out at mattandbrettlovecomics.com. You're going to want to go to facebook.com slash theylovecomics. That is where you can find out all of our information, get our past episodes, and basically generally just have a good old time. So let's whisk you away to the past, to the Stumptown panel at Heroes Con 2013. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, how's everyone doing in the convention center today? <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, welcome to the Stumptown panel. Uh, my name is Matt Little. Beside me is. I'm gonna push to talk. No, I don't. Wait. I always have to push to talk. You will always have to push to talk. Lesson learned. I yeah. am Brett You gotta burn some calories to talk on this panel. Yeah. Calories. That's right. That's right. Uh, and uh, we are your moderators for this afternoon. Uh, joining us are. Yeah, it's gonna be so wild. We needed two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're uh, we got a guaranteed. We're, control. we're yeah. pen and teller, and we both talk. Yeah. Oh. Right? Is that? We're pen and pen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a reason one of them doesn't. Okay. Uh, yeah, but joining us today are the uh, phenomenal talents behind Stumptown itself. To my right is uh, Mr. Rico Renzi. Thank you. To his right is the. Oh, he will be taking pictures too. Uh, Rico, you are like pulling quadruple duty today at the convention. Uh, (laughs) You look tired. You like already, uh, already in wear down. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, answer the question. Yeah. Uh, oh, we feel that he did not answer the question completely. If he was answer the question. Uh, <laughs> uh, joining us as well to his right and my farther right is uh, the great Mr. Greg Rucka. Great. great and powerful. The great and powerful. We'll, we'll keep swelling that head. You saw that Yeah. <laughs> and at the far end, uh, at the farthest right, the greatest, uh, Mr. Matthew Southworth. Oh man, he's got his uh, San Pell down there, San Pellegrino. At some point, I'll break this open and you, the class will enter the room. 
Yeah, yeah. We got feedback on a hot mic. We got a, we got a Pellegrino on a hot mic. We are sponsored by Pellegrino. Oh yeah, yeah. We uh, should announce. Everyone should go have a nice, tasty Pellegrino. Is yeah. that the choice of drink for the Republicans? No. Oh. Oh, answer the question, sir. Is that or is that not? <laughs> that's, that's the Democratic blood orange. <laughs> Oh man, uh, we are not here to talk about the uh, Republican convention today. We are here to talk about Stumptown, um, guys. Uh, voted the water in Portland. Portland. Oh, that's interesting. That, that is that's a character. You guys are like, what the hell are they talking about? We had a special election in Portland, the beginning of May, and there was a yeah. I know because that's how asinine it was. Portland had this. They dumped so much money into fluoridating our water, right? Portland doesn't have fluoridated water. So my kids have had to take fluoride tablets like every day, you know, from the time that they were like three until 10 or 11. Somebody in the city council finally had the bright idea of going, hey, you know what? Or we could be like the rest of the civilized world and put fluoride in the drinking water. And half, well, apparently more than half of Portland went, oh God, no! That just, it doesn't work. It, the arguments work, it doesn't work. Because the main argument for doing it, right, for fluoridating drinking water, is that it reduces dental decay, in particular amongst the poor, right? And then the horror stories you hear of really low-income kids who have to have, by the time they're 12, 13, 14, like jaw replacement surgery because their teeth, teeth have gone so bad. So okay, that was the, well, that doesn't really work. That's argument one. Arguments two and three were, it will change the taste of our craft beer and <laughs> coffee. Uh, and it was defeated. <laughs> Portland still continues to not fluoridate its water. So, for the record, Dex voted in favor of fluoridation, and she's cheesed right now. Well, there's, there's of course the Alex Jones contingent that's convinced that it's a mind control experiment. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So that was not that was never on any of the literature. So <laughs> but we were getting literally. They were well, not the stuff that was printed on ink and paper, but the well, stuff that was written <laughs> shit on bathroom walls. I'm, I'm talking about. I'm talking about amount of money spent on flyers that we kept getting. Right. And it was one of those things where it's like, really? The anti-fluoridation? People have their, I swear, I swear, have their shit together enough that they can send out two million flyers to everybody in Portland and say, don't do this? Portland. Okay, you're motivated. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> no, they, they, they didn't put, they kind of closed it. Yeah, this is a I'm they, not afraid of you. <laughs> and the casual cursing door is shut. <laughs> the serious cursing door is the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, if we get if we get into the, like the the seven the seven words you can't say on television, yeah. they're going to shut both doors and lock them until all the words. We've are got done. six to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a that's fascinating. Uh, Portland. <laughs> no, no, it really is. Uh, anyway, transition. <laughs> well, no, because I. Uh, I feel like uh, I feel Let's like talk Portland property tax. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but seriously, what percentage are you paying right now? <laughs> um, you know, the Stumptown of Stumptown itself, uh, as you said uh, in the back matter of Volume Two, Issue One, is is almost Portland adjacent in a way. Yeah. Um, and what fascinates me about it is. Um, I mean, Portland's such an interesting city to begin with, uh, and as an East Coaster, I sort of see uh, Portland and, and even Austin as kind of these 
Magical uh, these, these magical places, if you click your heels Other places time. we can run to from New York. Yeah. <laughs> and, and do fine. No, but they are. They're, they're, very, uh, they're very unique. Uh, they're very unique towns that, uh, that, that hold on to. They both have similar uh, uh, catchphrases of keep Portland weird and keep Austin weird. Yeah. Right? And um, so, so how do you feel... How do you feel that sort of uh, paradigm informs the, the world of Stumptown itself? Um, you know, the, the book was very deliberately named as the analog of the city. So it's not Portland per se, but it is unmistakably Portland. And I think one of the things Matthew has done so spectacularly, especially considering that he doesn't live in Portland, but he lives in Seattle, is really capture, the city is more than the architecture, but so much of the city's character is based on that look. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much of Portland's weirdness informs the book as much as, to me, the uniqueness of the city. But, you know, anywhere, you, Charlotte's as unique as Portland. It's getting, you know, any place you go, you're going to have a sense of place. Use plays twice in the same sentence. Um, I wanted. I'm, I'm a huge fan of mystery fiction. That was actually before I I, I got lucky and, and and was given the proper encouragement to pursue writing fiction. I thought I was going to be an academic, and what I was studying was you know private eye literature. Oh yeah. Yeah, you, you yeah, talk a lot about, about that, that, which yeah. is good, and, and and it's great too. You have a, such a. a, a an awesome background that you grew up at a time when yeah, you know, was, private investigation literature. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I came I came of age during a period where you could not literally throw a, a book in a bookstore and not hit twenty PI series, um, and you could not turn on the TV. I mean, Thursday night television was all privatized all the time. It was you know, what would you like? Would you like Riptide? Well, we have also on the menu for tonight Simon and Simon, which in retrospect, not very good. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, my, my wife Jen Van Meter bought me the season one box set. Why somebody even put this out, I don't know. Of Simon and Simon like two years ago, and I couldn't make it through the pilot episode. How that show got on the air, I will never know. And yet one of the most formative television moments I have is, is, is a sequence from a Simon and Simon. So, um, you know, it was, it, I came to... Stumptown, Stumptown was a book that I wanted to do, you know, 15 years ago, and I can't not approach it being informed by, frankly, this liberal arts major, English lit, um, literary criticism take on it. I, I'm very aware of the tropes that I'm playing with and the tropes that, um, the tropes that I want to acknowledge and the tropes that I would rather we, we, we forget. And one of the tropes in all detective fiction is location, is the city. Um, and the nature of that place is, is a direct factor. So, you know, Stumptown, Portland Stumptown is in many ways identical to Portland, but the you know, some of the edges are filed off and some of the edges are really sharpened. I mean, there's some really sort of, Portland is one of the top three entry ports for human trafficking in the United States. Is that? 
Are you serious? I'm not, I'm not making that up. I don't know why you would. But. No, I mean, <laughs> it, it, I think Seattle's number one, actually, and I think Portland's number two. Yeah, woohoo! Um, yeah, I think. Or, or, or LA, Long Beach. Everyone knows Beach, a lot about human trafficking. Everyone knows a lot. Um, I, human trafficking was actually a huge, huge, huge issue for me. Uh, I, I wrote a novel a couple years ago in the Kodiak series called Walking Dead that came about because I had read a book and I'd forgotten the author's name called um, A Crime So Monstrous, which is about global human trafficking. And most people think of human trafficking, they actually immediately go to sexual slavery um, because that's the purient. Yeah, there's Walking Dead. No zombies or anything. No zombies or anything. Yeah, that's Walking Dead as opposed to The Walking Dead. <laughs> Worst title choice in my life. Worse than Lady Saber and the Pirates of the Ineffable Ether, actually. Like that poor guy that made that movie called The Star Wars. Yes. Poor son of a bitch. The Jaws. I'm hoping that at some point. And Godfather. <laughs> a Godfather. Yeah, a Godfather. But, um, yeah, we've, we've just gone off, uh, off the rails a little bit. But it is, it is a huge issue. And I think it's, it is, once you become aware of the nature and extent of human trafficking, it is very, very difficult, if you are at all a human being, to ever be able to put it down again, because it shatters so many, the, the truths of what's going on shatter so many of our comfortable illusions in first world life day to day, when we go, well, there's no slavery. It, it, you know, maybe there's slavery in, in sub-Saharan, you know, Africa or India. There's no slavery in the U.S. And you're like, no, actually, there's documented there are over a quarter of a million people kept in slavery, minimum, in the United States oh, right yeah. now. Minimum. And that's, not, and that's not sexual. That's not being exploited for sexual purposes. That's people who are being kept to do work yeah. and have no free. And, and the second real, I mean, you really start to think about these things, it becomes... It becomes a crime so monstrous. Um, there is a there is a Stumptown story to be told, where you know where that's that's the one where she actually is using a gun. Um, is is, is going to be that story? Um, that's that's probably further down the line. Uh, I was yeah. noticing that like whenever I'm doing you know, illustrations for it, I'm always drawing her with a gun. I was like, well, she didn't even use a gun. Yeah. She owns one. Did you ever read the pilot, the spec pilot I wrote? No. There's a whole bit in it where she actually has a gun in her hand, and her relationship with the weapon is, you know, like she uses it to make the point she makes. And one of the guys is like, you know, what are you getting? She, she fires it. She, the other guy's like, oh, what are you getting? You know, it's, I bet you it's not even loaded or whatnot. She's like, boom, guess again. Yeah, um, oh, I'm dying to read that. Yeah, I really want to. Yeah, it's, it, it's not that good. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you my notes. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, and, and as fully realized as like uh, Stumptown itself is, Matthew, I think you do a, a fantastic job of, of, you know, bringing to life visually this gritty world that, that Dex lives in and, um, and just, you know, especially in that, in that first series when she gets she gets beat up. She gets beat up a bunch. Greg, what's going on there? Well, it's a, a PI trope. No, <laughs> Anybody ever see the Rockford Files? Um, sure. Can you name oh, yeah. a single episode you got out of without being punched? 
One? Yeah. I mean, and, and how many times did he literally have the hood of the Camaro slammed shut on him? I mean, it's got to be in double digits, high double digits, you know? So that, that, it's a trope. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, that's, and I discovered when I wrote my very first novel, which was not a PI novel, because it was about a bodyguard, you know, but it was. The first time I beat up Atticus, I totally got it. I was like, oh, this feels great. <laughs> I'm gonna kick the snot out of him. This bastard's made me miserable for the last three weeks. This is my thing. This is why writers beat up their protagonists. It's just like, dude, you think you're so good? What have you been doing to me? When I uh, when I wrote my thesis play in grad school, I did the same thing. I beat the shit out of all the characters, and it's fun. It's, it's therapeutic. Really yeah. Matthew, do you feel like an accomplice as you're drawing, just like whispering apologies to the page as you're drawing her? You know, what I kept thinking about was Chinatown. You know, I mean, he spends half yeah. the movie with his nostril cut open, and I kept thinking, oh, this is like the Chinatown yeah. thing, you know? Well, and, and, and the difference between, I think, one of the things Matthew did so brilliant is that the injuries are persistent. Yeah. You know, it's not like, next scene, eyes all better. It's like, no, no, she's got that shiner for the rest of the damn story. I mean, she is like, I really, I hurt. <laughs> I'm hurting. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, and that's, I, I loved the consistency. You know, there's a visual consistency across the series that's, uh, that is really rewarding. Like, you, you can tell that you put a lot of care into the page from composition to actual rendering. Um, and reading the back matter from the first series, it, it, it seems that you, you do take a lot of uh, pride in the work that you put out. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to say something like, you know, you put a lot of stress into it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to make an inappropriate joke when you were saying, well, there are 250,000 slaves in America. And I was going to say, that's the indie comics industry. Is really, uh, but, uh, but, Yes, I mean, I do. You can always quit. It's the difference. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. You know. uh, I do put a lot into that. The thing that was most important to me, certainly on the first arc of Stumptown, was that I really wanted it to feel like a real place, and I wanted it to feel like the real place. You know, so that it, I'm from Nashville, and every time you see a movie set in Nashville, it's, it's not really Nashville. It's like a thing that looks... Vaguely, the town I grew up in. I'm also I'm also from Nashville. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. That's why the only reason I watch Nashville, the show, is because it's shot in Nashville. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, if you've ever seen that movie, The Thing Called Love, with yeah. River Phoenix, you know there were there are landmarks I recognize, but you know people are driving in weird directions, and the characters don't act like they live there, and or everyone's so. accents are over southern. Exactly. Yeah. Over southern. <laughs> so. You know, that was important to me. And the other half was that I wanted, the things that I really loved about what Greg wrote in both arts were, were really like personal, emotional things. You know, they weren't kick-ass car chases, although I really loved the car chase issue. Oh, oh boy. The car, the car chase issue is so bad. Yeah, that's like a but series of Every scene that you had insulin was just insane. Oh, thank you. He was the one that was most important, you know, and, and most difficult by far. Ansel was? Yeah. Uh, in, which, in, in which way? Well, there's a pitfall there, 
Because you really, really, wait, does everybody know who we're talking about? Presumably, the only reason you're in this room is because you actually know the comic. But I figure we should chat. Yeah, yeah. Round of applause. We've, we've read Stumptown and think it's amazing, right? Anybody who know who Ansel is, raise a hand. Right. Oh, right. Yeah, you wouldn't know. Ansel I, is. I, I read the book. I just don't remember That's okay. who Ansel was. Yeah, Ansel is her uh, brother with Down syndrome. Okay. So Thank she's. You. It's. It's weird. It's sort of a story about a single mother in a way, yeah. you know. Um, but he was difficult because, I mean, partially because of that. He's not a child, but he's childlike. It's also just difficult to visually represent someone with, with Down syndrome. Do. It's hard to do in yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's not easy. And you don't want it to read like insultingly, but you also, you're trying to convey it so that, per, you know, I mean, when you see someone with Down syndrome, a lot of the time you immediately go, oh, he or she has Down syndrome. You know immediately. So, well, um, you, got it, you got it on the head, both of you, because when I was reading through it, I've, I've dealt with adults with Down syndrome, and I knew from the first few lines that the character. My, my, older, sister, my older sister has Downs, so okay. and Ansel is based obviously off of experience. Yeah, so that was really important to me, and you know, and also just at, because I was responsible to you, who were writing about someone you love. You know, I didn't want to screw that up. I, I told you that my mom's first comment when she read it was, "You're not going to kill him too, are you?" <laughs> my first, my first novel had a character who had Downs, and she died in it, and I don't think my mother has ever forgiven me. And that's almost 20 years ago now. Oh. <laughs> she holds a grudge. That's uh yeah, and, and those scenes too, what I what's what's just so great about this series as a whole too is that all of these characters feel real. When you step away from the book, uh, you know, these feel like people that you could go get a beer with. There are three there are three dimensions and shades to all of them. Uh there in and no word pun intended there, but like you know, even even the way that they're drawn, everyone's consistent and realistic, and uh, and part of that as well, Rico, are the are the colors, uh, which really do a great job of just conveying the mood of the scene and even you know creating a sense of foreboding in many situations of uh, of, of what's going to happen. Thank you. And I, uh, the, the colors are mostly a collaboration with Matthew. Um, and just kind of facilitating uh, what he wants, and he actually goes in after me and will kind of tweak it for you know, storytelling purposes, just to make it look the way he wants to look. Uh, I think he's really in tune with Greg's vision for the, all the characters in the story. Which of you guys did, did, did you guys do the uh, colors on the cover for, what was it, was five? Yeah. The, was, that, was that both of you guys no, together? that was, uh, Talking about in the bushes, yeah, like yeah, that was me. That was actually a weird one because it's it was. I was one, looking at it today. It's the only one that's not kind of stark and poster right. color. And you, you put know? it, you put it next to the cover four. Yeah, which is such a, a graphic design cover. Yeah, uh, it was. It, was it, it it sets the mood in a really powerful way for that issue. It's interesting to me that you. I was worried about that, frankly, because it was not consistent at all, and I figured people would say something. You're the only person who's ever said anything about it, and you said a positive thing, which is... Uh, but, I, you know, I wanted to say about what Rico did, you know, you had, like, sort of a suicide mission in some ways, because <laughs> over and over again, 
like you would get way less time than you should have had to color things. You know, they would say, "Why don't you do this? We need this in three days." Yeah. That's, and that's pretty standard for color. Yeah, which I think is nuts. <laughs> well, it's easy. What you do is easy, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just maybe done, right? But Rico, and I'm not. I guess I am saying this because you're here on the at the on the dais. Is that how you say that word? Dais. Um, we'll say it that way. Uh, uh, you can Yeah. Um, but Rico is the easiest person to work with that I've ever seen. Uh, you know, like whenever I had something that I wanted different, he was always like. I, you know, I could hear in your emails the tone of voice you just had. That like, oh yeah, well you know, like whatever you'd like to do, I'm here to serve your mission. And I was always thrilled by that because I get so tense about every step of this process. <laughs> you know, so you just made it very easy to do good stuff. I just really love the book. Um, I came in on the, I think the third issue of the first series, and um, and on short short notice. Yeah, and. I just really love the book so much. I read the first two issues and I was like, nah, I don't really have time to do this, but I'm gonna do it anyway, because I just really like the story. It's like, it really reminded me of Rockford Files and that, you know, that heroine who's, you know, in situations and just somehow squeaks out of it. <laughs> I just really, um, I just really love the book and I'm glad we got to work on it twice. Yeah, and me too. <laughs> you know, uh, Brett, Brett talks a lot this column about uh, about you know we're in sort of a color renaissance I think uh, there are a lot of like really really great colorists out there right now and I think it's something that does get taken for granted often in comics because well, it can be done in three days one day one day a whole issue yeah sure many times <laughs> many times oh man that's that's incredible, but what I would just not Stumptown. Not Stumptown. Oh, those uh, we'll casually curse about those later. <laughs> casually. What what I'm even noticing just by the three of you hanging out here is that you guys have like a, a very uh, collaborative nature to one another. You're you're very uh, agreeable to each other, and uh, and you seem like people who understand that. You know, working together to move forward is is like a great way to, to realize your vision. Is that is that sort of how it was behind the scenes, or not I mean, quite? <laughs> well, no. To be to be honest, um, I mean to be honest, no. Uh, you're right on the core level that I think we we it is it's absolutely a collaboration. It's a collaboration to a pur purpose, and that purpose is to make the best book possible. Therefore. Conflict always will arise when there's a difference of opinion on how to achieve that, and and we'll fight for it. Um, I don't think it, it ever. I don't think it was ever adversarial or really negative, but I do feel that it, it was. You know, it, it, it is an issue of like, well, what's the best way to do this, and, and is this the best way to do this, and and, and is this. Is this the ideal thing? And I mean, God, there's so many times that I would put in an issue, and then I would be like, the last four pages, I don't know about. I don't know about these four pages. I mean, you got to rework them, you know, script the Matthew and be like, you know, just so you know, these four pages are still in flux. You got to let me know what you think. You know, Matthew puts in thumbnails, and you know, I'd be like, I don't know about this angle, and you know, 
I think it was, okay, well, this is what I'm doing, this is why. Well, I don't know that's going to be clear. I think it'll be clear. I'm saying, okay. <laughs> so you see, I mean, you, 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 but for somebody like me, and I may be the only one of the three of us who can speak like this, I cannot draw. I just can't. Oh, me neither. Well, no, so, not at all. So, so any comic that I do has to be collaborative. Um, and if it's a good collaboration, then everybody involved, you don't actually have to like each other, but you do need to respect each other. It helps that Matthew and I like each other, I think. Yeah. You know? um, but, you know, this, this, this has to be collaborative for me, or else it doesn't exist. I just, and, and honestly, you know, I, there are things I do that I think I do very, very well. I am not a visual storyteller, and it would be an enormous hubris on my part to turn to Matthew and say, you're doing it wrong. You know, and it just, it, because it would be like, never mind your years of training and hard work. You know, I, I'm I, already telling myself. That. <laughs> yeah, see, well, and funnily enough, I do the same thing on the script side. Yeah. So, I, you know, the thing that I wanted to say to speak to that is that, uh, you know, Greg's done a million. Uh, I started to say major label. I'm starting to think <laughs> major, we should call that major label. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, major label back there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's done a million of those. I've done a few of them. Rico's done, I guess, at this point, more than. Um, especially if you're doing them in a day. You did 365 <laughs> of them last year. Um, but the thing that I, I, I like working for Marvel and DC when I do it, it's fun. But what I don't like about it is it is very rarely, in, in the experiences I've had, collaborative. It's much more, right, right. It's always like kind of divided and the person you really speak to is the editor. And you know, like I, I did something by, uh, Set, yeah, set tech. I, I had one brief email that I just sent him to say, hey, nice working on your script, you know? Did you um, get a response? Yeah, yeah, very nice response. But, good. Um, but the thing that was cool to me all the time about working on this stuff with Greg is that even if there were disagreements or if one of us was being prickly or sensitive, I think we're both fairly hypersensitive. Uh, at times, certainly can. See if he gets mad. Now. That's not even <laughs> what do you mean by that? We certainly can't be. It all depends on the week, I think. Yeah. We're going to run some issues today. But the thing that was cool about it for me was I knew, obviously, that he really cared about it, and I knew that he knew I really cared about it. So there was never a thing of like, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to do it this way because I'm tired and I don't have time. Like the, I knew he didn't think I was making decisions because I was lazy. Yeah, that was, the, the, there's never once been an instance in this of you don't care enough. Right. Uh, ever. Um, and that's not to say that that's part and parcel of work for hire at the big two, but when you were on the big two schedule, you were part of the machine. Um, most creators want to dare phone it in when they're doing creator on work. Yeah. It's a lot more personal. Well, exactly. And there's no payoff. Yeah. But yeah, there's no money in it. So like, why waste your time? If you don't really want to be doing this, don't do it. Like, yeah. Hang out with your kids, you know? Or go make some kids. <laughs> <laughs> make kids to hang out with. Right. Make kids to do the inking. <laughs> I'm going to start my own. It worked for the Adams plan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she, does she flat? Uh -huh. well, right. 
My son actually wants to intern at Periscope, which is the big um, studio in Portland. And uh, at some point, I'm going to have to talk to Lieber and say, so Elliot wants to come and basically intern. And I don't think he understands what that means. Uh, that he's going to be making a lot of coffee. You know? Oh, yeah. So, we'll see. Interning sounds amazing until you start interning. Until you do it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know the truth. How many copies of everything do you need? Yeah. Coffee and coffee and coffee. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if this should be coy about what we've been discussing about the future. I don't feel like. Um, you know, the situation is such is that in Matthew, and I, there will be more stuff now. Yes. Um, hopefully by next, uh, next summer, I think is probably what we're looking for. But the goal had always been to do it as, um, you know, a semi-regular ongoing, meaning that there would be arcs and then much more like Saga publishes now at Image or what we're hoping to do with, with Lazarus. And, you know, it just never clicked uh, right with Stumptown for a variety of reasons, not the least of which being the effort to compensation ratio uh, is, is not in frankly, anybody's favor. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, what we've been discussing, what Matthew and I have been discussing, is Matthew, I'm speaking for you. You're right here, man. You can, <laughs> you're doing a good job. That's all right. Talk about it. Well, you explain. It's, you know, it's basically, it, it, I feel a little like a heel saying this, and it's weird. I've never described myself as a heel before, or anyone else for that matter. But, but there's something about it that feels this way. But... Basically, I'm actually a relatively fast artist. I'm, I'm reasonably quick, but not on some. Yeah, Stumptown I was not quick on because, well, two reasons. One, I cared a lot. Exactly what we were talking about. And two, it paid so little that whenever other work would come along, I had to take it. Oh sure. You know, like. I, and this is not a criticism of Oni or anything like that. It's it's really just the realities of the market. Nature of the market, yeah. Um, if if Stumptown had starred, you know, someone in a cape, this would be a different story to some degree. Well, um, the room, I, I'm glad you all came. The room would have a lot more people in it. Yeah, that's true. If there if there were more tits and more punching and better outfits, this would be a busier room. And it specifies that tits punching or punching. There's a difference. The hope is that it's like the Velvet Underground. Yeah. So, you know, where they say that they only sold a thousand copies of the album, but every thousand copies spawned a new band. Oh, but like, Stumptown is a thing that you can hand to a new reader. Right. Like, this is comics can also be tits. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is almost more important than doing like the definitive. Like you can do like the definitive Spider-Man story, but if it's in between like fear itself and something else, it's like, oh, here's the definitive Spider-Man story. Hey, go to Wikipedia for all these random other references that are going to come up. Like, yeah, yeah. Many times I've sold uh, Stumptown to people at the table where they'll say, you know, at a con table, I mean, um, where someone will say, well, what is this, and blah blah blah, and I'll say, you know, that's actually really good, and I'm not just saying that because I worked on it, because I worked on plenty of stuff that is not that good. But this book is really good, and it's so that's you know that's the payoff. Yeah. The problem is that doesn't pay yeah, off the rent. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so as a result, we've been talking about the fact that I don't think I can do the next arc, and it bugs the hell out of me because I want to. You know, it, I care a lot about this book, 
Um, now, this was all a discussion that we had before Greg became a Kickstarter billionaire. <laughs> and, uh, so Stumptown Kickstarter? Well, who knows? I mean, we haven't even talked about that idea. Do we have an announcement? <laughs> right now. How about that? Um, but, you know, I don't know how not cool you want to be. We have also talked about trying to do something else yeah. where we could actually make a little money. One of, uh, the long and the short of it is it looks like Matthew's going to be stepping off of Stumptown. He and I are going to look for another project that we can do someplace that might be able to bring in, we'll say, a wage um, for each of us. Because it's easier for me to take really low-paying jobs because my, you know, I spend a lot of time on the scripts, but even if I spend an inordinate amount of time on the script, that's still, in a percentage ratio, very little to what, you know, the artist, any artist is going to be putting into it. And frankly, ideally, should be a much smaller ratio than what any colorist gets time to put into because... You're never going to get the best work out of somebody if you say, by the way, we need it done in 24 hours, so you're not going to sleep. Um, so we're going to, uh, you know, I've talked to James Lucas Jones at Oni, and we're, we're starting to look at, at different artists and trying to figure out who's going to follow Matthew. Um, and then at the same time, Matthew and I have had some really preliminary discussions about, you know, let's try, let, let's figure out what we want to do and where else we want to, want to take that. So. That's, that's exciting too, and I, I mean, I'm glad to see that the pair of you are, are going to continue to try to work oh, yeah. together. I mean, if me too. This, is, this is amicable in every sense. I mean, we've been so, it's funny too because the emails between us when the conversation started were so like, are we okay with this? And, and, and the realization that we're both like, this was, you know, we're a little verklempt about it. And, you know, the goal of what I would love to see for Stomptown is be able to produce two to three arcs a year, right? You know? That would be great. It's just right now. There's just there's no way in the world that that Matthew can do that and live. Yeah. I mean, really. And 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 and, and that's not to say so. You know, there's some starving sucker artist out there that we're gonna you know rope into this. But there's got to be a different way to there's got to be a different way to finesse the situation. And at the same time, frankly, it gives Matthew and I a chance to go. Okay, well, next is over here. You know. Let's start with this premise, guy, gun, room. Where do we go from there and, and, and see? And that could be fun and, and, and I think exciting. And so look for guy, gun, room in 2018. GGR! Yeah. <laughs> well, as we now have a, yeah. <laughs> it's actually about a tit with a gun. <laughs> that wears a cape. It's already sold 200,000 copies. That's right. That's right. It has been an option. There you go. Um, it, well, I'm, I. That's, I think it's important, too, like when you find someone that you enjoy collaborating with. That, you know, because, uh, because though we may enjoy the final product as fans, I'm sure sometimes it does feel more like work than, uh, than, than something that you enjoy. So when you find those type of, th those type of creators that, that bring out the best in you or you bring out the best in them and you enjoy working with them, you know, you want to try to do as much as you can. Yeah, well... I've had a lot of sort of career detours, and they, I didn't know they were detours at the time. Uh, but the thing that I did before I got into comics was I was making films and writing screenplays and all that. And the thing that I like about working, even if I didn't like Greg personally, the thing I like about his scripts is that there's actual substance between the 
incidents. Oh, a lot yeah. of a lot of comics, even good comics, are like artfully strung together incidents. One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Yeah. And I like them. I'm not complaining about them, but they're not as much fun to draw as like Greg had this scene, I was describing this to someone earlier today, where Dex has sort of attacked Ansel. She's been sort of too aggressive with him about a guy that dropped the guitar off at the house. And he'd written the scene as one page. And uh, I, I could have drawn that scene for 10 pages. Like, there was so much stuff there, and we stretched it to two, but there was yeah. just like, that was the most important thing, aside from the car chase in the whole arc for me was those two pages. And you it don't... It was such a human moment. Yeah. And you don't get that on Swamp Thing. Yeah. yeah. Swamp Thing's cool. I like Swamp Thing. But yeah. it's just... It doesn't hit the same... Uh, it doesn't pay off the same way. Yeah. You know? For those of you that may not be aware, there's a there's an amazing scene in Volume 2 where... Uh, where the guitar that Dex has been hired to look for uh, shows up at her home and uh, her brother uh, accidentally drops it and she's already sort of frayed at the edges because of the entire case and uh, is kind of snaps at him and there's this really sweet conversation between the two in his bedroom that starts with him saying that he can't hear her uh, and she notices that his eyes on his bed off. with his iPod buds in his ears. And yeah. for me, you know, I've, I've been sort of co-raising my girlfriend's son, who I met him when he was three, he's nine now. And you know, like, I don't know jack shit about being a dad. And <laughs> I think most dads don't. But, so, you know, you're constantly doing things and punishing someone for doing something or whatever, and you do it wrong a lot. And that's what that scene was about to me, was sort of acknowledging that, like, mm, I'm sorry I did that wrong, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, that's the type of things that, that Greg does so well in his scripts. He creates these real, believable people in his scripts. I mean, even the stuff that he's done for the big two, uh, the, the major labels, and, uh, and especially within... Especially within Stumptown, uh, Dex is Dex is such a complex character and has so many different shades and nuances. Just like a, like an actual person, you're right. you know most you're so many people. You're different people to different people. You know you have different interactions with everyone. And Dex <laughs> is just that way. But none of them are so different that they don't feel that they're, yeah, they're not true to that character. They're not they're not un unidentifiably that person. How yeah. interesting that you bring that up in a context where we're talking about essentially sort of superhero comics versus kind of indie comics because, you know, obviously at the heart of superhero comics it's about the different people you are to people, but they yeah. only split it into two. And of yeah. course you and I both know that we're a whole bunch of different people. Yes. It would be fascinating if we could see more of that in superhero comics, I think, where we see the many facets of Bruce Wayne, like, you know, billionaire playboy, superhero Dick, misogynist, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, all those things. That's 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 so true. I and I wanted to uh, I wanted to just really touch upon it, and maybe we can open it up for for some questions. Um, it was we, we mentioned it a couple of times. I want to talk about the car chase issue um, because that was how a round of applause. Uh, how many people read that car chase issue? Volume two. 
Tom has to be one of the one of the single most proudest issues I've ever produced. Oh, been, I mean, seriously, been a part of. I, 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 I think, I think what you guys did just knocked it out of the park. Well, I feel like with comic books, I feel like you always hear like car chases and horses. It's like you can't do those. Like they're just like the hardest things to do. So like to see one done well is astounding. Thank you. Yeah, you guys used all three. You used all three dimensions. You used the page as three dimensions. I have actually a question about that for Greg. Okay. So when we talked about it, and some of this stuff I can't even quite remember. I don't remember whether you said I want to do a car chase issue or why I or I said we should do something with a car chase and I make no it a whole issue. I know I know that you and I had a discussion very early on during the first arc that one of the tropes was a car chase. Right. And that we both wanted to figure out how to do a car chase in a comic that was gonna work. Right. But hand to God I don't remember which of us said the way we're going to do it is we're going to devote the issue to it. Right. I, just know, I just know that when we, one, whichever one of us found our place there, the other one was like, yes, that's how we're going to do yeah. it. The whole issue will be a damn purchase. I remember we'll being make this thing work. really scared that you wouldn't go all the way with it, that you'd be like, well, it's 12 pages, that's a car case. No. And I was like, no, it's got to be a whole thing. I hope he doesn't. Yeah, I, I think I have them in the car building, page four. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was like, I had to actually move them from the office into the car. But once we were there, they're in it until the end. They don't get out. But as with that, I know that I was saying that at some point that, you know, of course, car chases are horizontal, and I wanted to be able to use the spreads as much as possible and twist them. But here's my question. So I know we also, at some point, talked about, you know, like flipping back and forth. But you're the one that flipped it back and forth and back and forth. You know, I didn't know that was going to happen. Now, when you did it, I have to actually take my hand off the button here. So I'll use my theater training. Yeah. Or this one. <laughs> oh. uh, but that, so, you know, you're reading a book this way, and then you flip it, Playboy style, and then flip it again. Did you intend this? Car yeah. steering wheel thing. Yeah. That's. Uh, don't tell me you're not a visual storyteller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's. How many comics have you read where you're actually physically having to imitate what the characters are doing to read the book? But you have to keep punching yourself. <laughs> I remember that one. God, I hated that. <laughs> it was. It was a really. I kept losing there my are place. a fair number of porn comics. We <laughs> <laughs> guys different type of feet. Wait till you see something on our So, so you get that. So, so the, the script, the, the script shows up in your inbox, and you're you're sitting down to do this. That ended up linked to like 120 photographs in the video. Oh yeah, yeah. There was. Oh really? A lot of photo reference. We, we did the drive. We yeah. did. No. Jamie really? Lucas Jones and I went down to Union Station every night on D90, and he drove, and I just snapped pictures all the way along the route. And then, as I understand it, he and Charlie Chu went and did it again with yeah. a video camera on the deck. Yeah, I didn't. Re that's that's the first time I knew that you took those pictures. I thought yeah. that James and Charlie took those pictures and did the drive. I, no, didn't know you were I was I was snapping those those pictures like nuts. Yeah, I mean, I used to go to Portland all the time to take photo rep, but this was a time, <laughs> the one time I really really needed. <laughs> I couldn't get down there, and they 
they sent me all this stuff and it was great because I could literally just watch the video and it's like a it was like the most boring car chase. It was like it's twenty five. We weren't actually, we weren't actually chasing yeah. anybody. <laughs> but it was it was really cool. So I had everything oh, I, I needed. The chew has you know, like you souped up Subaru, and I know it's like, yeah, yeah, I can get up to 125. I never saw the video. I don't know if he actually did speed along. No, there's, yeah, there's I can't lots of stopping at lights. <laughs> and there's also, you know, like, it, they clearly just sort of ignored the camera. They're just talking about whatever nonsense <laughs> and changing the station. So it's a really, like, sort of tedious thing to watch. <laughs> but it was really useful. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and, and you reading can't it, do that chase. Oh man, we need the uh, the the annotated Stumptown tour. You know, it's funny. I did one of the. We should do a commentary track for that issue. That would be fun. That'd be yeah. really fun. You absolutely should. Let's do it. We didn't think it out when you should have done that. When the hardcover comes out, let's do that. Okay, all right. I did a I did the fourth and fifth Kodiak novels called um, Critical Space, and there's a bit in it where the main character is has to basically is sent on this crazy route through Manhattan and some of the outer boroughs and the process is designed to strip him of the protection that he's got so that this character can finally essentially abduct him. And that was the first time where I was like, you know, we're going to have to do this thing. And so, you know, me and like three friends met at this apartment at like seven in the morning, the video camera and the car, and then we just did the route. Um, and that was the same thing for this. It was like, you know, let's 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 make sure it's possible. Let's let's really do this. Um, wow, so that's and and the, the just the feeling like I really felt like, uh, like I was almost out of breath by the end of that issue. Yeah, actually, good you know, because I really wanted that moment. The expression that Matthew has men have at the end after the car is you know and the engine is gone, chunk, yes, you know, and Dex is like this, and Mim's just like. And I thought that was, I mean, it was the perfect line. Is this a show? Is it good for you? <laughs> that was perfect. I nailed it. Uh, that issue was great for me. Thank you. Just FYI. Excellent. Um, Would you like a cigarette? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think at this point, let's, let's open it up for some Are questions. Any questions? You have yeah. Answer. Anybody has any questions? Yes. Well, you grew up with Private Eye shows, uh, Simon and Simon, Riptide. Mm hmm did you ever look at what you were writing and say, you know, this is obviously Jim Rockford, this is obviously Mike Hammer, or Spencer, or whoever, and did you intentionally model the character? I've seen more Jim Rockford out of that than anything else. The Stumptown is an unabashed love letter to the Rockford Club. It is, it is unashamed, absolutely. I've never made any bones about this. <laughs> I, when I was eight, I would sprint home from school, and if I... School got out at 2.50, and if I can make it home by 3 o'clock and literally smash through the front door, hit the TV button, I could get home in time to hear the Rockford Files answering machine. And for two years of my life, that was the end of my school day every day. Uh, I love that show. Starsky and Hutch? No, I uh, never watched Starsky and Hutch, actually. But it was, it was Rockford, it was Magnum, Simon Simon, and then was some of the other stuff. The big formative stuff was always Rockford, and then it became Magnum and then Spencer. And Spencer was my entree actually into the books. Because I started, you know, they, you know, my parents said, here's the Hardy Boys. And I'd be like, what is this crap? <laughs> this is horrible. You know, give me Encyclopedia Brown. And then my mom, I've told this story before, my mom 
was in Santa Barbara. I lived in Salinas, California. My mom was down in Santa Barbara, and there was a mystery bookstore in Santa Barbara called The Cloak and the Dagger. And she would go in there every time she was down. She went in and she said, uh, Do you have something that my, my 10 year old threw? I think 10 or 11. I had to be like 11 because I was in fifth grade. And the bookseller, for reasons that will never be known, said, Yes, here's this, and gave her Stuart Kaminsky's Murder on the Yellow Brick Road. And I'm sure gave my mom Murder on the Yellow Brick Road because it said Yellow Brick Road. <laughs> and not because it was a story set in 1936 Los Angeles about porn films being made on the old Wizard of Oz sets. <laughs> I'm sure of that. I also know my mom didn't read it because she gave me the book. So I'm 11 and I'm reading this thing and the main character is a detective named Toby Peters and he has sex in a dentist chair. <laughs> and I was hooked. I was like, these are the best books ever. I went to the library and I was like, do you have any more like this? And the librarian said, come child, let me show you the adult section. <laughs> and Kaminsky had like seven other novels and this is great. You should read Kaminsky. Right? These are the Toby Peter mysteries and they are delightful. They are a joy. Um, they are about a private eye named Toby Peters. They are all set in Hollywood between 36 and the late 40s. And they are well-researched. He's got the era. He's got the feel. Toby is invariably hired by a, a celebrity. In Murder on the Yellow Road, he's been hired by Judy Garland. So that was it. I was, you know, I was like, now Rockford I'd always loved, but these were books that had that stuff. And there was no going back. So yeah, Stumptown was always going to be, it's my PI show. I get to do it my way. And it was very deliberate. What does, you see, this is a whole different panel and a whole different discussion. And if we had the room for longer, I would actually go into it. Suffice it to say, everything about Dex was done with malice aforethought. All right? It was done with me having looked at it from a literary from critical and from a fan perspective, looking at the genre and going, what do we need? What is the difference? What makes it work? Dex is meant to be Rockford in 2013. That's, that's who she is. She is the, because that's what every PI is. Every PI is a lens into their society at the time. The character is designed, the genre is designed to give social commentary and that only works if you're present in the moment. That's why you cannot remake the Rockford Files. That's why when NBC tried to do it, it stank. Because they tried to remake it, and you can't. Rockford is from a period where there was high inflation, where there was an energy crisis, and where, as you see in the opening credits, the guy can't afford steak. There's a beautiful shot in the opening credits of the Rockford Files where he's in the supermarket, you see the show, and he's going like this with a package of meat. Can I afford this? Right? You compare that to Magnum. And one of the quintessential opening magnum bits, right, is him in his dress whites. And there's no fucking reason he would be in his dress whites. He's in his dress whites in this black room lit by green radar screens, and it's all technology and military might, and so it's Reagan's America. It's Reagan's America, and that one. Yeah, he's driving a Ferrari. He lives on a rich man's estate. He doesn't have to pay rent. He's a buddy with a helicopter. Got, I mean, he's got, and, and Vietnam was a bad memory, but they're all getting over it. Yeah. It was Reagan's America. 
you know? So Take that, Republicans. <laughs> so it's a long answer. The long answer short is yes, absolutely. Anybody else? And, and, and a, just a slightly related thing. Greg has always talked about it being the Rocker Files analog. I deliberately, I remember the Rocker Files from when I was a kid, and I specifically remember that super cool theme song. Uh, but I deliberately didn't watch the show because I didn't want to oversell, you know, the I thing. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Makes me wonder how it would have turned out if he'd grown up on Mickey Spillane. Yeah, or Jim Thompson. I watched Mickey Spillane. It just, it, I never, I never, I, I like that, I like the hard, hard-boiled stuff, but that's not, Spillane is not to be P.I. Yeah. The, sh the show that I wouldn't miss as a kid, and we're roughly the same age, I think, uh, was The Love Boat. And how much of the love boat informs Dex now? <laughs> Don't answer. Don't yeah. you dare. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but you guys talked a little earlier about um, how one of the big tropes of the PI novels is beating up the characters. And well, novels, television shows. For any of you guys, art wise, writing wise, is it harder to do that for you guys with a female character without getting weird? I absolutely didn't want it to be harder or weird. And that, that's one of the things that mattered to me. I, I, have been, I was once accused of being a misogynist because I was mean to my female characters as I am to my male. Which I think said, says much more about the person making the accusation than me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm an equal opportunity son of a bitch to my protagonist. I don't care if you're straight or transgender or queer or male or female or what, I'll beat the hell out of you anyway. I want uh, equal opportunity son of a bitch to be a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, my response to that is that, well, for one thing, I think that the, the usage of uh, the term misogynist which is not what you're saying exactly, but in a related sense, is just wildly overused at this point, uh, particularly when we're talking about fiction. And when you, when I wrote my thesis play back in college, it was about a woman who had murdered her, uh, her abusive husband and run off into the desert. It was a western. Um, and uh, then she's hunted by a bounty hunter who gets his fingers cut off and gets shot three times in the chest and gets buried alive and, uh, there's another guy that gets his throat slashed. And basically, I beat these characters as near to death as I could. And all it did was, uh, this play was very successful because people loved them, and the more bad shit that happened to them, the more they empathized with them, and the more they cared about them. Now, certainly, if your intentions are mean-spirited, you know, obviously you could do that. But to me, the fact that here we have this character. Okay, so it's a... It's a female character. She's walking around with a big, noticeable black eye. She's not stopping to put makeup on it. She's not going, oh my god, I hope nobody sees me. That, to me, said a lot about that person. So I was thrilled by it. I was actually bummed out. I don't know if I've told people this. That was my favorite part of every page. Was I would do it with my fingerprints. And that was literally the best thing about every page, because I was finishing, and I would literally go, done. <laughs> so then in the second arc, she doesn't have a black eye, and I didn't get that feeling of completion. I don't remember that. <laughs> I do think, I mean, I do think that there's a responsibility in how you portray it, you know. But that is as much, I'm doing, I'm doing something right now uh, that's eventually going to come out from Dark Horse. The main character, one of the main characters is a woman who appears in the half of the first issue she starts making. 
<clears throat> and, and, she, and, and, and it's a story point. And I've been talking to the artist about the fact that that has to be done objectively. Like when we see her moving, her nudity is from an objective camera, it's not subjective. And the difference is this, there's a bit where she goes through this gate, not this flight of stairs, and his first panel of it was right past her behind. And I was like, that's the, that's the wrong angle, it's not an ass shot, all right? That's not us, that's, that's a subjective POV. The subjective POV is a character going, hey, that's a nice rap. Um, but for us, for the storytelling, and one of the things I want to do in the book, and I'm struggling with is it, a lot of what I'm dealing with, I'm trying to tell a story about male gaze. And, 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 and so, and, and once again, it's a bunch of guys trying to tell the story, which in, in and of itself is problematic. Um, but you know, really trying to control the lens in that sense, so. You're waiting. Yeah. There are more now, but that was again. It was part of updating Rockford. Um, if 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 in the '70s the PI had been a woman, that's what the show would have been about. In 2013, the fact that the PI is a woman is frankly incidental, except for those few people who have you know, literally at this point archaic points of view. Um, she could be a woman, therefore she was going to be. Uh, by the same token, it's societal. I don't think, like I said. This, you know, the whole question of what's going on with Dex's sexuality is meant to be representative of society right now. She can't tell you, she literally cannot tell you if she's queer, if she's straight, if she's bi, or if she's just not. She really can't tell you. And I think that's going on a lot in the society these days too, and that's meant to be reflective. Um, that, you know, she doesn't really have a problem with it, and she's not sure where she stands. Um, we live in a huge era of uncertainty. So a lot of what Dex deals with is these insubstantials. The truths are very vague and, 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 and absent in places and subjective. But the fact that she was a woman, absolutely. Again, mal absolute malice of forethought. Like, no, it's, it, it's one. And how exciting is it to see another well-written Greg Rucka female-led book Right? I mean, so that's all here's a guy that knows how to not just write complex characters, but do a great job of writing leading women. You like, I, I like writing. <laughs> I, I hit a point, somebody was asking me something, and I, I, I hit a point where I just, I'm, I'm tired of even having to, I, I've been asked it so many times, I've become so self-conscious about the choice, and I'm now at a point where I'm just fed up with even being self-conscious about the choice. I write them because I like to do it. If you don't have a problem with it, don't be, if you have a problem with it, don't be. You're an equal opportunity son of a bitch. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The thing that was cool about that with Stumptown for me is that uh, what, I had someone come up today and go, well, what is Stumptown? And I said, well, it's about a private eye in Portland. I didn't say it's about a female private eye in Portland. It didn't even dawn. Like, uh, that's what I like about Greg's female characters is they're not women first and then interesting people second. Yeah. That they may have characteristics of their lives that make them interesting because of their being women, like everybody else. But they're not books about somebody being a thing that's inactive and boring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think we have a... Yeah. Actually, I've, I've been changed my question. Are you saying you've gotten a lot of criticism for writing female characters? Uh, yeah. I, I, I guess it's, I, it's, I, I'm behind it's, it's, it's become a shorthand joke. You know, oh, it's another Rucka woman. You know, Lazarus is, um, Lazarus is a female protagonist. 
this thing that I'm doing with Dark Horse is ostensibly a female protagonist. <clears throat> There's another thing that I'm looking at that I've been trying to do for years, female protagonist. Um, and I remember I was, and you'll see, I talk about this in the back matter on Lazarus. So I talk about how the idea came about and so on. That I had seen this scene in this moment, but I hadn't seen the character, didn't really understand the character. And as it began to evolve, I realized the character was female, and I had a moment where I actually asked myself, you know, are you going to write another? You're going to get hit with it, you know? And that was sort of my moment where I was like, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight it. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I've got the, <coughs> the novels I'm doing now. <coughs> Excuse me, the coffee is thickening my throat in a not sexy way. Um, the, the novels I'm doing now, the main character is a guy. The main character is a guy because literally the publisher uh, said we'd, we'd like a male protagonist. I'm maybe doing another novel, and I, I went to them and I said, you know, okay, this idea, blah, blah, blah. It's the third of a series. This would be a work for hire novel. And I said, so let's talk about the main character. Uh, do we have a gender issue or not? And the guy came back and he said, well, the first two novels are female protagonists, so we'd really like a male for this one. I was disappointed. You know, but I was like, sure. I mean, it's fair. I can make that change up front. That's that's not a thing. I just know that for some people, it, it's not. I don't think it's an issue as much as it's a cliche. And I think there is an expectation now when people go, "Oh, Ruck is writing a woman. Is she going to be gay?" And it's like, so what if she is? You know, I just had a question about that actually. You know, Stumptown sold well-ish. It didn't sell great. It certainly didn't it sell. Sold, it sold well for eight. Yeah. 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 I'm. Well, and I guess using Saga as an example. This is probably problematic. Well, what I was going to ask was, I wonder if it would have sold better if it had been a guy. If it had been a guy. I never thought of that question until just this afternoon. I will tell you right now. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, they, I've read a bunch of articles recently about video games. Yeah. Video games and comic books aren't, they have a lot of crossover yeah. audience. And uh, like, publishers won't let yeah. the I, I, game makers make yeah, I've read that. I've read the same article. It's interesting. I'm a huge Mass Effect fan. I'm a huge Mass Effect fan. If you played the games, and they, they released metrics just a while ago on, on the Mass Effect franchise, now that it's like all ended, sort of for now. And if you know the game, you can play as either a male version of this main character or a female version of this main character. If you play as the female version. And, and no offense to the guy who does the voice acting on the male, the female version is much, the dial, everything's much better. The actress who does the voice work is much better. And I saw a metric that said only 18% of people who have played the game play as female Shepard, which boggled my mind, stunned me, stunned me. And I remember I saw those exact same, exact same articles you're talking about I where they're like... I saw a breakdown of, of the female people who played Mass Effect. Even 70% of them played Mass Shepard. Yeah, see, the, there's there's a whole so, there's a whole sociology sociology study to be done right there. That's to, I find that terribly depressing. I, I find, find it uninventive. I mean, to be totally honest and sort of jokey, but also honest, it seems like it'd be more fun to play as a female. I'm not female. I would, I would it'd think be fun to pretend to I be a girl think, for a little while. I would think you would want to go. Hey, this is an opportunity to roll. Exactly. Play. Yeah. Well, not too far though. Not too far. No, exactly. well, that's not too far. Exactly. Not to compare them directly, and certainly not to like, put them against one another, but I think all the criminal arcs so far have male protagonists, don't they? But I honestly don't think, and I think Ed would probably agree with this, with the exception of Fatal. 
uh, he's running for tall, he has, he's got to have a female protagonist, that's the idea behind it. I don't think it's terribly good or, or comfortable writing women, for the most part. But I, and, and I mean, in a, well, it's, well, there's it's, also, a, they're on a different distribution level because right. those books are distributed by yeah. Marvel. Yeah. They're a bit major label. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, but also it's weird because I mean, like you know, one of the points of entertainment is to experience something that you would not able to be, you know, you're you not able say, to yes. experience. So like it just there's a real logical disconnect. Yeah. I, remember, I remember being on, on set for Whiteout and giving sides to Beckinsale one day, and she's saying, "I'm not going to say these lines. People don't talk like this." And all I can think is I walked back, and I wish I'd had the presence to say at that moment, I really wish I had, but, but I, I, I didn't, I was back in the office before it hit me, it's like, what the hell does she think a movie is? <laughs> I mean, it's not a freaking documentary. I don't know about you, I go to movies to see people better looking than me, do things I will never do, and say things I will never have the presence of mind to say. I do not go to see realism. For example, in the movie version of this incident that happened between you, you I would have, have said, said it. it. <laughs> I would have said her straight, and in the movie version, she would have said, oh, Greg, I'm it's right husband for you. Uh, uh, yes, Miss Beckinsale, so you're right. Uh, I didn't even say anything. I was just like, I really was. I was like, wow, you are two different people. Like, when, when, you, are, when you think people are watching you, and you have to be on best behavior, you're on best behavior. The second they're not, you are every Hollywood cliche. Yeah. It really was horrible. Guys, I think we are. We are uh, so overdone. Yeah, uh, but I want to thank uh, I, I want to thank our panelists today, uh, Rico and Greg and Matthew. One more round of applause for them. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Go pick up Stumptown if you haven't read it. If you have read it, tell all your friends to read it as well. Uh, have a great rest of the con, everyone. Have a great afternoon.